only see written down, and this is particularly true in bylines. I'm I'm sometimes not sure. Like the editor of Byline Times, Hardeep, it's a woman. It's not like Hardeep Singh Kohli. She's a woman editor. So so I, I know your byline because I read the Times uh, from about 2004. We used to get the Independent and then the Times. So many is the time that I saw your byline in the Times. I wasn't... Okay. I wasn't quite there when you worked for the Daily Mail. Uh, who do okay. you write for nowadays? I, I don't really. I'm, I'm kind of. If, I mean, I'm, I suppose from, from journalism, I'm, I'm effectively retired. I just, um, I just. Well, I'm doing a couple of books, and um, that's keeping that's keeping me ticking over. To be perfectly honest. Indeed, and this book, which we're here to talk about, all my own words, or yes. all my all my own words. Um, the sports yeah. writer who was the author of his own downfall. If people don't know what the downfall is, I'm not going to go too much into it, uh, just because okay. it, it seemed very messy at the time and unfortunate. But um, I just want to start by saying, you're a, are you still a workaholic? And did workaholism cost you the job? Uh, I think you could say the answer to both those questions is yes. I could have dropped the the, the Wimbledon annual many times in, in the years. I mean, I took it up in 2004. Obviously, in 2014, it was taken from me, as was my job. But there are, there are certain stages in between that time when I should have actually given it up because it was a bane and it was time-consuming and it was... I did it as a labour of love, really. And as I say, many was the time when my wife said, you really shouldn't do this anymore. You, you know, you go into a funk and it's... You get miserable, and so. But it was a, a job I felt I, I I was asked to do, which I was very proud to be asked to do it, and I wanted to do it to the best of my ability, which sadly I didn't. Yes, and and this is I imagine documented in the book. So it's a mea maxima culpa. But those in the know will know why Neil Harmon had a was the tennis correspondent of the Times and then wasn't. But why? Why on earth did you only give yourself or have ten days? To put together, a, is it 160 page annual? Well, it wasn't necessarily what, uh, how, how long I wanted. It was how long that was demanded of the role. The club wanted the, the book produced as quickly as possible after the championships, which was which was their right. There was a deadline involved, but it was it was a pretty quick turnaround. And I, I'm, I'm not seeking to make excuses because that that seems that seems petty now. But uh, the, the tennis writer's life from the beginning of April was effectively non-stop. You worked every single day of every single week. You started in you started in, on the clay courts, Monte Carlo, Rome, Madrid, Paris, Queens, Eastbourne, Wimbledon for two weeks. So you, you had sort of seven or eight weeks without a day off. And the last thing really at the end of that, at the end of Wimbledon, which is, comes as a kind of mighty relief and all the kind of blood rushes from you and you just want to sit down and relax, you've then got to pick, it, pick yourself up and start to write a book which really is the last thing you want to do. You really want to go on holiday. So the fact that there was a quick turnaround was, was a relief in one way, but of course you rushed, and, and I rushed, and uh, the consequence of me rushing was, was bad mistakes. Yes, shoddy and inexcusable by your own admission. Um, Private Eye uh, got the story, though it was a US journalist who um, yes. brought it to light. Was there a vendetta against you, or was it kind of you'd committed the cardinal sin of mis- inattribution? Well, I can't, I can't say whether or not there was a vendetta against me. I, I really don't know the answer to that. 
what I do know is that, like a, like a lot of these situations, there's a certain degree of envy. I, I don't think it was. I don't think I'd be telling it an untruth to say that there were those who didn't like me. I didn't know they didn't like me personally, but they didn't like the fact that I was who I am and that I, I had the job I had. If you'd ask anyone in, in tennis writing what the number one job is, it's obviously the tennis correspondent of the Times. And to have had it for so long, I think it rubs certain people up the wrong way. And I did the job very much in my own style. I wasn't particularly um, collegiate when it came to, to dealing with um, other, other, other of my colleagues. I ploughed my own furrow, and I think I upset a lot of people along the way. So whether that was part and parcel of the reason why uh, people came for me in, in the way that they did, only they can answer that. Mm. But I know that there are those who were quite envious of me and, and my position. I hope it's nothing to do with the paper you were working for and the proprietor, whom Private Eye have not liked for 50 years. Um, you bumped into Rupert Murdoch at the Wimbledon final in 2012. I would love to sit down with him because I saw Ink. Did you see Ink, the play with Bertie Carvel? I, I have to say I didn't see that. No, no I think it was brilliant because it, it, it spoke about how Rupert Murdoch is a newspaper man to his very inky fingers and... I, I keep not wanting to read the Times because of various problems I have with the political coverage, blah, 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 blah. But it's a great paper, and some of the exclusives that they get are brilliant. So I suppose I should, rather than ask you what Rupert Murdoch's like, because we know what he's like. Uh, Owen Stelzer wrote a book about him. Um, do you still read daily newspapers? Do you go out and get it? Do you get it delivered to your door? What is your uh, diet for news? I buy the Daily Mail every day. Not necessarily for myself, although I do peruse it. My wife likes to read it. I don't buy any other newspaper, and I used to get two or three. Uh, I mean, I read some. I read some stuff online, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay the money to the Times to to, to read behind the paywall. Certain things are pointed out to me. Did I see so and so? And if I'm in the mood, I might go back and and, and read it. But um, you know, my my first national uh, was was the Daily Mail, and. Um, Though it seems to have become a lot more extreme now than it was when I worked for it, I still find it has uh, its sports. Its sports coverage is still, you know, as good as as good as there is. I think it's yeah. got some got some tremendous writers, and uh, I like reading it. Well, I spoke to Kieran Gill, who's written a book about uh, CTE and dementia in footballers, and I did say, look, the paper you work for, I have several problems with, but if it gives you a job. And the dementia campaign, which has gone on for 20 years since Jeff Astle yeah. passed away. It is one of the best bits of journalism that they're insistent on it. And then you've got Martin Samuel writing a book every, twice a week or, or whatever. Martin is, um, he was on the Times. So I read him in the Times when he shared yes. pagination with you. I suppose he was on the right and you were on the left because the tennis pages would have been just to the left of his pieces. Memory serves me right. His his only contribution to the, I say only he used to write two full page articles a week because I think I'm right in saying he was he was actually on the staff of the News of the World, but mm. as part of the deal that brought him from I think he came wherever he came from when he joined the News of the World as part of that deal he wrote two columns a week for the Times, and I thought personally that that was his best work. I think now, if I if I would if I may be so bold, I think he overwrites 
I think there's too much Martin Samuel, and uh, you know he's he fills that space. I think it's too much space and too much stuff. And even I can't read it all. I'll pick a couple of bits out of it. I mean, when I was on the Daily Mail, Ian Waldridge just wrote two or three columns a week and wrote brilliantly at certain events, but he never overwrote. I think now that Martin has, has been given the license to overwrite, and he, you know he could do it in a, in a much more condensed way and still make the points he, he wants to make. This reminds me of how Michael Jackson would make albums that went right up to the edge of the CD, and because he'd sold squillions, no one could tell him no. So, yes, I have compared Martin Samuel and Michael Jackson. We're in the football library, by the way. Uh, Martin Samuel, to my knowledge, hasn't written a book about football, which is why we haven't... Well, he's not on social media either. No. uh, Which is highly, highly unusual, but I think Martin obviously saves himself for his his pieces for the the mail, and he considers that is is enough projection. He doesn't need to have his say on on social media as well, and... uh, the thing is, I think on, on the one hand, it's a very sensible move because someone in his position is going to get absolutely you know, ta- taken to pieces yes. all, a lot of the time. And you don't really need that. It's best, I think, sometimes not, not to read it, although, of course, it's, it's very tempting to do so. Well, as, as a great tennis player from Switzerland once said, Twitter, why would I want to do that? Uh, that is yes. one of the quotations in a book that I have seen for the last few years in the library, the, the Watford Central Library where I live near. And I took it out yesterday to read the chapter about Wimbledon. It's called Court Confidential. Uh, and it's uh, one of your many books about tennis. Jewel for the Crown was there as well about Hemman and Rosetsky. And we'll get to Hemman in, uh, in a second. Do people still message you saying I loved Court Confidential? Because it seemed like the book that was necessary at the time uh, to go beyond the curtain. No, no is, the, is the simple answer. Uh, I think once you're out of any kind of situation, you're, you're dropped very quickly. You no longer need to be to be in the kind of the need to know situation. So, no, I don't think anyone has ever. The, the, the thing is, once again, I go, I go back to the to the element of kind of envy. I, I, there weren't that many people who said to me, "What a terrific book that is." It's not the way it works, strangely enough. You'd like to think that someone would say, great book that, Neil, or I didn't enjoy that at all. But for the most part, you get very little reaction from your former colleagues. It's quite, it's quite sad, really. There'll be one or two good mates who say, I really enjoyed that. I mean, when I, when I wrote the book about the season with, with Wickham, uh, Wanderers, the season when they got promoted you know, two seasons ago to the championship, I got a tremendous amount of kind of private uh, support and congratulations but not no one would kind of come out and say directly kind of on social media and you've got to read this fantastic book i mean whether it was fantastic or not i don't know but what i and i kind of get i I still think that the p the plagiarism word means that people don't want to put my kind of work forward i mean i i was astonished because it's still five star review that the the the, the close quarters book on on wickham on amazon uh, it's it's complete five stars, yet it was never even spoken about in the in the sports book of the year award or a football book. Yeah. And one or two people have said to me it was as good as the, they've read. So I don't know whether judges and these things are, are told not to nominate me because of my kind of checkered past. I really don't know. I could be I could be completely making that up, but I, I do think there's an element. Once again, we don't want really to have harm and around. Which is perverse because I've just read Nihal's book, Let's Talk About Conversation, and who should be there but 
plagiarist Johan Hari. You must have read as a fellow plagiarist, Johan has done it not once but many times and has been done for it. And yet he's still getting promotion for his books, although I think it's Matthew Sweet going after him a lot. Do you have sympathy for Johan? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, I don't know quite. I don't know the extent of his story. I mean, I suppose I should know it by, by heart. But, um, and dare I say it, I, I think his was, quotes, worse than mine. Oh, I mean, yes, mine I agree. Was, yes, yes, by, yeah, by any judgment. You know, I, 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 I simply was buried beneath, uh, you know, an avalanche of, of paper and cuttings and, and trying to formulate them and sort them out. And which day would that happen? Was that the Tuesday or was that the Wednesday? Um, what round was that? Did so-and-so beat so-and-so? Was it two sets? Check the scores again, Neil. Make sure you get the scores right. And in doing that, I kind of would take a paragraph from somewhere and put it in. The one thing that's, that strikes me even now is that incredible as that, as it sounds was that when i was doing it i wasn't aware i was doing it if that sounds crazy i i was just kind of taking a par here and it never dawned on me that it was if that you know as bad as it turned out i mean because i i was kind of fastidious if i if i thought that if i took a like paul hay i always remember saying you know paul hayward said in the telegraph so and so and so and so and so and so and the paragraph after that was maybe a description that i that uh, picked up from the Telegraph or, or from the from the Guardian or somewhere, and forgot to say, and this was in the Guardian. So, uh, once again, I it's it's the extent to which the I mean, obviously, I I I, I didn't do a particularly good job of subbing myself, but it wasn't it wasn't until they said, "Have a look at this." I thought, "Holy cat, holy mo, I didn't even re- I didn't even realise yeah. I'd done it." Well, it, it's maybe it's like. It's like what George Harrison did with My Sweet Lord and unconsciously plagiarised He's So Fine. It's, it's almost the same song. I, I rem- I've said this before, so apologies for repeating myself in the library, but Damien Hughes, who does that high-performance podcast with Jake Humphrey, I was r- writing something about Alec Ferguson, of whom more shortly, um, we've got to do Henman first, um, and I, I noticed that he had word for word taken a paragraph from Danny Taylor's book on Ferguson, he gets jazz. I always remember. Hang on, I remember that phrase. And he'd taken the whole paragraph, and I lost all respect for Damien Hughes. Um, not that the book was brilliant either, but I hope Jake Humphrey knows that he does a podcast with a plagiarist or an accidental plagiarist. But it is easily done to to not attribute is, someone. It, yeah, it is. It is. It is easily done because who in their right mind would set out to do something that they know could cost them their job? I mean, it's, it's frankly a ludicrous suggestion that I would sit there knowing that what I was doing, because otherwise you just do a, a, an acknowledgement page. And I, I didn't really realise that, you know, a line here or a line there was, was I, that I was doing something that was illegitimate, in it, as it were. So it's, it's, it's crazy, really, because I was 40 years in the business and I should have known, I should have known what, what might, might, might happen. Um, but there you go. You, you know, you, 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 you kind of, bash on and don't don't think about it mm-hmm. all this is told in all my own words the sports writer who was the author of his own downfall which is out november 7 uh so something to read during the world cup which you're not watching oh i shall watch it yes i shall definitely watch it as much as i mean i still loved love to watch my football uh, you know although ultimately tennis was the thing that cost me i'm still football was my first love you know it's how i started on on local papers and it's still something that I find fascinating and watch it as you know as, as much as I ever did of course although I'm not there as it were I'm not there in person 
I still watch a lot of it on, on, on TV. find it absolutely fascinating, as I always did, and love it. Mm. Well, enjoy it. Um, do you have, in a frame, your front-page scoop, Master William Boot, uh, on the retirement of Britain's number one tennis player that you gazumped everyone else for, and does, does Tim speak to you still? The answer to the first question is no. I don't have it. I don't have it. Tim, from that moment on, frankly, more or less ignored me. Took it very much to heart. And it was funny, really, because there'd, there'd be a number of times, and I'd, I mean, I'd watched Tim a lot, obviously. I mean, he was a British number one player. You, you had to go and watch him. And I loved watching him play. I thought he was, he was a fantastic tennis player, sublime. And, and actually, I enjoyed watching him play on clay as much as anything else, because I thought he was... He was a terrific clay court player. Uh, and it's funny because he used to say, I, I, I take a place like Monte Carlo, for instance, if you would sit in a particular seat, he would, at most changeovers, he would eyeball you. And he once said to me, when I, when I'd gone off to relieve myself at the end of, um, you know, at the end of one changeover and went and sit, sat in another seat, he, he had a go, he admonished me. He said, next time when you get, will you come back and sit in the same seat? Because mm. I find, Seeing you helps me concentrate. Now, how, st- now how incredible is that? In fact, I don't write that. I haven't written that in the book, but it's absolutely true. Um, and Tim used to, as I say, he used to focus on certain things around the court. And if, if somebody moved and that focus, he, he would lose that focus. And it could affect him you know, for the next two or three games. Where's Neil gone? Where's he, where's he moved to? Why's he got where, where? And I found that absolutely staggering that he would he would be so into the zone that he would actually focus on certain things around the court, and I was one of them because I was literally kind of always there. Yes, always there, especially between April and August. My dad was um, uh, the captain of Coombe Hill Golf Club, uh, and Tim was a member there. And Dad and Tim had, had played together. Apparently, a very very good golfer of something like point yeah. five or one. Um, yeah, but with handling skills like that. Um, so rather than talk about Alex Ferguson, which we may do, I just wanted you to remember about five years ago, there was a cache of emails leaked and it was David Beckham and his representatives talking about knighthoods and UNICEF. Um, do you think he has stitched himself up now and that he will not get a knighthood because he's being paid by the Qatar royal family to uh, extol the virtues of the nation state during the World Cup? Well, let's put it this way. If um, Paul Dacre can be a lord, I think David Beckham can definitely be a sir. Ah, good. I wasn't going to mention him, uh, but you have mentioned Dacre. Dacre, who is the uh, Daily Mail editor and kind of... (laughs) I'm not going to use that German word that I was going to, but, um, yeah, the leader, the captain leader legend of the Mail. Uh, David Beckham, you collaborated with on my story. How did it come about? Well, I lost... I just resigned from from the Mail as chief football writer... And um, I befriended Tony Stephen. Well, one of my very good mates in football was David Platt. Oh, great. And he was represented by Tony Stevens, who was, had been the commercial manager at Aston Villa and found that a lot of players you know, weren't, didn't quite know what was happening with their money. And he, you know, he, he, he lent advice to certain players. David was the first one he worked with, and he worked with Alan Shearer and Michael Owen and, and, then, and then David Beckham. Tony said to me, look, David wants to write this book. Essentially, it was a kind of a parade of pictures. But he just wanted to tell the story of his career thus far as a little, you know, a little bit of dialogue between the glossy, between the glossy photos. So he said, well, do I do it? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And I'd, I'd seen David make his debut 
uh, in Moldova, um, 96, 96, 97. And um, so I, I kind of met him, been introduced to him. He was only a kid, obviously, about 19 or 20 at the time. I was just started to go out with um, with Victoria. And uh, so I, I did, I mean, that, that was literally kind of two or three sessions, a uh, couple of hours, of se- and it was done in six, sort of six hours worth of, of interviews. And um, But he was very, very friendly, very, very chummy. And, uh, no, it was, he thanked me for it, and that was that. Was that. This is not, by the way, my side, written with Tom Watt. Uh, this is my story, which was a glossy book. Victoria apparently thought I was just some, you know, football hack, and she'd rather go with a superstar. So, so she persuaded David to go with Tom Watt. Mm. So, c'est la vie, you win some, you lose some. Indeed. Uh, and David's career, that era was the Beckham era, captain of England... Uh, added lots to Manchester United's stock price and then the Glazers took it over. In fact, it's just struck me, would the Glazers have bought Man United but for David Beckham? Is that a stupid question? Well, yeah, no, it's not a, you, you, you may well be right. I mean, he was, he was such, you know, he, he was integral to the, um, the commercial success of the club, which, of course, has has you know multiplied so many more times inside even I covered them in the days when you know they they first became um you know a public limited company back in the 90s mm-hmm. but now of course it's it's absolutely the sums that people talk of is just uh, just quite astonishing uh, yeah. but but I'm sure you're right that that Beckham's marketability was that was seen by the glazers as something that were you know was a very important element in their in their in their buying of the club, in whatever terms you'd like to to, to, to say that, that, that what they've done there, the huge success, commercial success which which United remains. Although the person who kick started it is very much opposed to the Qatar World Cup, I'm with King Eric, um, who yeah. I, I, you may have met Ed Friedman. Actually, it wouldn't surprise me. The commercial director at Man U. Uh, he was he was part of post. Post my time. Right. No, and it was Ed who realised that Cantona was a brand that they could sweat and then they sweated Beckham and now they're sweating the class of 92. Uh, and they're the Harlem Globetrotters. So you covered yeah. them. That was your patch. You covered Manchester United in the uh, the first Ferguson era, so 86 to 94? No, I became chief football writer in the Mail in 1990, just after the, the, the World Cup, after Italia 90. Uh, so at that stage, of course, Fergie was had been the manager for some time, but was on sort of fairly rocky ground. And I I moved into the to the number one chair on the mail. So it, as as I say as I say in the book, it, it was an it was an interesting um, how can one say an interesting re- relationship because he was we- very wary of me. Uh, well, most mostly when he found out I was a qualified referee. That didn't go down well at all, as you can imagine, with, with his, his, his uh, how can one say, his slightly uh, not uh, a angst-filled relationship with referees. When he, when he found out that I was not only going to be writing lead football for the paper he loathed the most, but I was a ref as well. It, it, didn't, it didn't, didn't start off in the best of, best of circumstances. Uh, and you would record the great team, which I'm, I'm just too young for, but they threw 91-2 away and folks said, right, use. Uh, user effing going to win this. And they did. They won it next season. Steve Bruce has just been fired. Uh, we're talking on the 11th of October. Bruce was fired yesterday. 
you would have spoken to Bruce and Pallister and all the other figures yes. uh, from that indeed. team. Yeah. Yeah. Are they underappreciated? Because they, they were on the cusp of the new ball game and the old one. Um, yeah, I think they probably, I think they probably were. Uh, of course, also, the, 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 something that doesn't happen now, we used to travel with them. Oh, yeah. Um, so, in, into Europe. Uh, the, the, the press was very much a part of, of the party, in a, in a, a part of the team, because it was regarded in those days as quite a quite a useful thing for clubs to help pay the way of pay, you know for the for these airplanes uh, if 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 the press helped foot the bill. So we were you know we sat at the back and watched this whole thing evolve. But yes, I think you're right. You, you take that side. I mean, Schmeichel was as good a goalkeeper as as I think I've ever seen. And then you had Parker, Bruce, Pallister, and Irwin. Well, that was a pretty formidable, you know, back line. You had Brian Robson, you had Cantona, you had Paul Lynch, you had Roy Keane, Andre Kanchelskis, uh, Mark Hughes, uh, and then Cantona came along as well. I mean, this, this, this Ryan Giggs, Lee Sharp. I mean, what a team! Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't mind that. They wouldn't. I look back at the first West Bromwich Albion team that I covered when I joined the Birmingham Mail in 1978, and if you look at that team. That, that particular Albion team, and you took the, the, the Man United team I've just mentioned. What wouldn't the club give for those teams now uh, out on the out on the park? Quite oh right. my God! Yeah. The West Brom was Gordon, Batson, Statham, Truick, Wild, Robertson, Cantelo, uh, Ali Brown, Tony Brown, uh, Regis, and Cunningham. I mean, what a team! What a team! Gosh, but hopefully West Brom will have hired a, a manager. By the time I said to my friend Dan, who's uh, from Walsall, I do hope that the chairman looks at Rob Edwards and sticks with him. But the chairman at West Brom is uh, suboptimal at the moment. Uh, I tell you what isn't suboptimal. Close quarters, an extraordinary season on the brink. Gareth Ainsworth has that job as long as he wants it, even though it's kind of his um, other job because he's really a rock star. He's a frustrated (laughs) football manager. Um, this uh, so there are books that go behind the scenes of football clubs, but Wickham at that time, um, and I've been to Adams Park, which is a lovely wee ground by a tyre dealership. Having the characters that you had, Joe Jacobson, who lives in Watford, Bio, uh, the Beast. Um, what was the most enjoyable, apart from going up, the most enjoyable part of writing that book? And did it remind you of being a kind of cub reporter, actually embedded in the story? Yeah, without a doubt, it reminded me of my, my my going right back to my days with South End when I was essentially I covered the reserves and the youth team apart from doing the Essex Senior League matches on Saturday because they, they had they had the correspondent far more experienced than I, so I had to go and meet I, I met the players I became the players' friend in a sense even though you still had to criticise them at times. So my, I think one of my great strengths has always been getting on with people, and I think that's where you can not know all the tactical movements and stuff that people now go on and on and on about uh, ad infinitum. It drives drives me nuts, to be fair, some of the stuff that I hear on TV and read. Journalism, to me, is about people and about stories and about getting under the skin of things. And that's where I thought I was was very good, because people talked to me, and I talked back, and it was a nice relationship to have with so many many really, really great people. I mean, what, just just sort of slightly going off tack. What was lovely? I went. The Wickham invited me to Wembley um, in April to see the, this last playoff final they were in. When of course the place was full, and uh, you know, I bumped into two of my really old chums that are going way back. 
Peter Reid and Niall Quinn, both of whom, of course, wanted Sunderland to win. And I just re we were reminiscing about some of the, the, the tricks we got up to back in the day. And it's great that people, you know, and I, I crossed Peter, and I mean crossed him in terms of the stuff I wrote and he hated, and he gave me terrible stick about it. We had to be parted once on the street <laughs> when he took the, some, some of, a degree of offence at a piece I'd written about Man City when he was the manager. Don't mess um, with a lad from Heighton. Don't you, mess with Peter Reid. Cheer um, up, Peter Reid. Yes, you, you're right. It was very much, the, the, the Wickham story was very much being there, being in the changing room, being in the restaurant, being on the training ground, um, being on the bus. Certain players who were the best one in the world were probably never figuring any other story, telling me their life stories. And uh, what, was so, what was so lovely was that afterwards... All of them said, thanks so much. You know, you've really told my story properly. I mean, for instance, take Darius Charles, who was, his career should have been over. I mean, he talked about a toxic personal relationship that he'd had. Now, he didn't know me from Adam. I mean, he really didn't. I, I, I barely had two conversations with him. And he sat down in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the changing room up at the training ground and you know, poured his heart out. Matt Bloomfield has just gone to Colchester as a man. What a lovely man. Told me, his, you know, I've got to pay the mortgage. I, I, I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. And these were wonderful kind of the, the human side of football when you're in a, when you're in a what should have been a struggling team. But actually, they went up. And, of course, we had COVID in the middle of it, which yeah. just added yet another element to what was an absolutely extraordinary story. And as I say in the, my latest book, they're extended family now. I mean, I can – they, they are mates and – for life, hopefully. I loved every second of it. I, I thought it was great fun. And I remember coming, we, kept, we were coming back from Rochdale, I think it was, and um, the, the, the black players were having quite a heated conversation at the, at the back of the, uh, the bus. And I, I sort of tiptoed down towards them, thinking they'd probably shoo me away. And uh, I said, no, I can't help but over here. Would you mind if I sat, sat in with you? Come and sit down, Neil, come and sit down. Right, what do you think about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? And, um, you know, I, I, I was, it was quite, a, quite an eye-opener to, to, to listen to their conversation and what they found offensive about the game and the people in the game and the, 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 the racism in the game. Uh, once again, having me, you know, a 60-year-old white fella sitting, sitting alongside of them, chatting away like mates, it was quite, it was quite fantastic. I loved every second of it. Yeah, and this this book, Close Quarters, an extraordinary season on the brink about Wickham Wanderers, uh, is in the football library alongside all my own words. The sports writer who was the author of his own downfall, both published by Pitch. So you've got a good relationship now with Paul and Jane. Are you working on another book for him? I think I'm about to start working, but not. I, I'm not sure if it's going to be with Pitch this time. I don't know yet. I mean, we haven't had that conversation, but it's it's got the makings. It's going to be a ghosted book. This one which I haven't done for a bit. If the subject matter is as, as, is as controversial and fascinating as I think uh, he's going to be, it, it, it could be some story. Ooh. And I'm, I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm just going to have to find... Tell you. I'm, I'm not going to tell you either. No, good. No, I can't. No, I'm, no, no. Really. We're in the formative process of, 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 the, sort of negotiations. Yeah, I, I know when when to, to pry and when not to. Well, I will. I'll finish just by... Talking about the time that I fell for football, which was 1996. So, had, had yeah. you covered Euro 96? Uh, I did cover. I covered Euro 92. Yes. 
the World, the World Cup in 94 and Euro 96. Fab. You were also at the FA Cup final 96, which was an atrocious game enlivened by Eric Cantona's brilliant goal against Liverpool. Yes. You are the man, and this will always be between the commas. Um, so you know what I say. Neil Harmon, comma, who invented the term the Spice Boys to describe Liverpool's side of the 90s, comma, died. Um, how many people know that you are the progenitor of, of that term? To tell you the honest truth, I don't know, but it is true. There was a piece written by um, uh, by Rob Stewart, um, who's a very, very fine football writer, and I can't remember the blasted name of the publication he wrote it in, but he he told the, Liber- the, the, the sort of Liverpool Man United of the 1990s had been a beautiful piece, long, very, very long piece, but he very nicely... Did, did did give me credit for doing that. It was just one of those things, you know. You sit in front of a of a typewriter or, or a computer. Sorry, typewriter. That, mm. like, that shows how old I am. <laughs> in '96, um, what were the male pronouns? I, I think I might. Have, I think I'd even outgrown my Tandy in '96 as well. I think I actually had a, a fully fledged computer then. Ooh. Um, but actually, to, to tell you, it was ni- it was actually '97. Not not it didn't come immediately after the the white suited cup final. It was later. It was actually the following year when I when I christened them the Spice Boys in, in around March or April 1997. But it, I, 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 and Roy Evans was was a, yes. a, a, a lovely man who was desperately trying to to keep this this kind of disparate characters together. And you know, some of them went along with him. Some of them, I think, took the Mickey out of him a bit with their unprofessional attitude. And and the, and the, the, the name the, the, the phrase came to me. Just one of those, you know, like a eureka moment. Liverpool, da da da, da behaving like you know, as if they're the Spice Boys. Yeah. And of course, it not only did it stick, it upset a lot of them. I think Rob Jones was 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 really pissed off at me. But I bumped into John Scales, strange enough, about um, four or five years ago at the Queen's watching some tennis, and he said, "Neil Chatterwell." He said, "The Spice Boys." I said, "Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, John." He said, "Well, no. To be fair, it was spot. It was spot on." Yeah. That's um, that's why it's still used today to describe. And if they'd won that cup final, uh, we would we'd refer to them happily as the Spice Boys. Um, Neil Harmon, the <laughs> author of all my own words, uh, the sports writer who was author of his own downfall, out um, out on November seventh. Enjoy watching this World Cup, and uh, good luck with whichever ghost written book you're working on afterwards. Thank you, Neil. Just like the library, just like the library, just like the library.